Namaste and in la catch. Hi, I'm Zen Benefiel and welcome to One World in a New World. Now, those two phrases come from ancient languages. One means I, the divine in me recognizes the divine in you, comes from the Brahmi language, and in la catch comes from the Mayan uh, culture, and it simply means I am another you. Now, imagine if we could see each other like that and how the care and compassion we interact with each other um, in the world could increase as a result. Just think about that. So today's guest is Anthony Upward, and Anthony is uh, from Canada, of all places, and he's got a very interesting background. Um, he came through or, or went through um, a lot of development in his flourishing business canvas, and uh, he's taught at the Ontario College of Art and Design, um, he or still does, he's been there since 2014, and he calls himself a, a pracademic in um, a sustainable architect business. And his, uh, he's a founding entrepreneur with the Edward James Consulting Firm. He's been with them a little over 11 years now. And he has some very cool and, and pertinent information and methodologies for helping us shift our minds from a competitive to a collaborative activity in business and life. So with that, Anthony, welcome. Thank you very much. That's a lovely introduction. I, I try to, you know, truncate and, and capsulize for as much as possible. Yep. So tell me a little bit more about the, uh, the flourishing business canvas and, and how um, that idea first was presented and, and how that evolved and, and um, what you're seeing that, that has happened with that in your work. It's, it's uh, an, an interesting story, I think. Um, and so I'm, I'll, I'll go back to um, the idea of, of where, this is a tool to design business models. So where does the idea of business models come, came, come from? Well, in modern, it, it's actually a very recent term. It's a term that really started to emerge with the internet because people were starting to think about the internet disintermediating businesses uh, in supply chains and uh, therefore people were starting to say well the business model is changing and that's really in the 90s when this term started to be reused. So in the late 90s early 2000s a Swiss uh, PhD student named Alex Osterwalder uh, did his PhD um, on basically trying to answer the questions what are the factors that lead to profitability? Uh, the business model factors that lead to profitability. So he did his PhD on this. And we've kind of got two models. It, it, this is how I see it or, or termed it. There's a profit over people and planet, and then there's a people and planet over profit. And those, uh, well, well this, kinda... this, is the inter this is the interesting thing about this PhD because it has an unstated assumption in it, which of course, from a science perspective, it should be setting off lots of alarm bells. Um, uh, but and, and this is what I spotted. I, I read his PhD when I started my graduate work in 2010. And it, it seemed um, that he had just assumed that everybody was interested in creating businesses that were profitable. 
and that people didn't have any other objectives when they started a business, which from personal experience, I already knew wasn't true. Uh, just from a, an entrepreneurial perspective, most entrepreneurs want to change the world. Now, they still might, might want to be doing it in a way that's highly profitable, but they want to change the world. You've got to pay your bills, right? You've got to pay your bills, exactly. You have to be viable, financially viable, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. for sure. So, so what I basically what I did is I took that PhD and I said, what happens if we challenge that assumption? What happens if we ask the question, what are the business model factors that are relevant if you want to design a business uh, that uh, could be uh, socially beneficial, environmentally regenerative, and financially viable. What would what would the business model factors look like? What in a that concept, case? huh? Uh, what a concept, absolutely. And you know, I I kind of went looking around, assuming somebody must have done it already, and they hadn't. So I did it. Um, and so, uh, long did you story. Find that odd. Um, y- y- yes, yes, and no. Um, there's been a few cases now where I where I've been either stumbled across or in, involved in something where, as far as we can tell, the the community that I'm part of, the strongly sustainable business model group, we seem to be doing things that nobody else is doing, and um, which and which obvious is, things from my perspective uh, and and, well, and obvious things, yeah. yeah. It's 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 interesting that which and that's profoundly exciting and also terribly terribly scary, uh, <laughs> because sure, the state we're in. Yet. <laughs> right, there, there is no net. There is no planet. Well, B. actually, there is a net, and that's how it's all happening. Right, 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 right. Yes, and things are just getting. Except the net's got big holes in it. It's not. Right. We're not going to. We'll, we'll be falling through it in no time. So that's the story. It, it's um, the, the other piece of the story that's worth mentioning. That's that's highly relevant. Is that um, when you start to say, "I'm going to design the business model um, of, a, of an organization, a fu- the future business model of an organization." Um, you're moving away from doing planning to doing design and planning mm-hmm. and design are two very, very different activities. Absolutely. Um, uh, pl- planning is setting out the things you're going to do. So when you write a business plan, you're basically um, looking at the world from all kinds of different perspectives, but essentially it's a work of fiction. Um, it, it's a, it's a hypothesis about how something's going to pl- pan out based on the data that you can gather from market research. Right, because you haven't gone through the execution stage. You haven't gone through the execution design. On the other hand is inherently iterative. You know, no designer thinks that they can produce the perfect design in one go, which is sure. what the business, which is what planning assumes, right? That you're going to produce the perfect plan. first. The business plan. plans are sort of designed to be flexible enough to when you go through that process and you see, Oh, that didn't work. Then you can make adjustments to, to, but it, yes, and that's that's uh, that's where planning has brought some ideas from design into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so when you start to have tools like the business model canvas for profit orientated organizations or the flourishing business canvas for flourishing organizations, as I would call organizations that are trying to be socially beneficial, environmentally regenerative and financially viable. Um, when you when you're starting to use tools like this, you suddenly move from planning a business to designing a business and uh, this actually this idea has also taken off in the profit first world mostly through the lean startup movement which is taking experimentation which is another way of saying design uh, it, up to another level it's and interesting the, um you know and, and one and, and this is going to spur another comment that i'm sure mm-hmm. you'll make um with klaus schwab's book covid19 the great reset he asked two questions uh, that i thought were imperative for us, one is at a personal level, you know, can we be carrying compassionate coming out of COVID? And the second one is, can businesses be agile 
which is kind of what you're talking about, is where this ability to see almost um, at, not as a predictive sense, but as an anticipatory set, if you will, of what's probably going to happen and then being able to be in position in order to take advantage of that. Now, you made some, uh, some comments about uh, uh, Bruno uh, Latour earlier and his work. Would you kind of reflect on that a little bit? And, and I think it imbues the conversation better. Sure. So, so one of the big differences between the earlier Profit First uh, business model canvas and the Flourishing Business canvas is that the Flourishing Business canvas starts by contextualizing the business within the environment, society, and the economy, that as a nest. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that leads to the question, what is the environment exactly? And how do we think about the environment? And over the last decades, uh, since the picture, in fact, behind you was taken in many respects, um, we've tended to think about uh, our consciousness about where we live has tended to, to say that we live on a globe. Um, mm -hmm. And it's the entire globe. And thank goodness that that perspective came about because it's it really shifted uh, an awful lot of minds away from this idea that um, uh, we weren't all together, that we were. Right. As yeah, one, old, right? Brings to mind the old phrase that, you know, no man is an island unto himself. Right. E exactly. Um, the, the problem that um, I've observed when we start to think about the environment in the globe, global context uh, is that we tend to, because the globe is so enormous, we tend to assume that the environment is also enormous and that we can't possibly have an impact on it. And what Bruno Latour has been highlighting recently, Bruno Latour is, is probably the preeminent philosopher of science on the planet today. And what he's been reflecting on is, in fact, we don't live on a globe at all. Now, he's not a flatlander. Uh, what he's saying is we actually live in the six kilometer high part of the environment uh, part of the atmosphere and, and a little bit of the soil, uh, which can sustain life unaided. Mm -hmm. If you go above six kilometers, which is you know longer than most people's commutes. Now, would the term troposphere fit that? Uh, it, it's it's even lower than the troposphere. It's it's okay. it's within the it's within the lowest level of the atmosphere as labeled, and um, the which is I I'm gonna. Which, which is only the lower part of the troposphere, if, if I'm okay. remembering my, my right. facts correctly. Just trying so, to, you know, so, so if you picture if, here, right? Abs absolutely. So if you um, if you do the if you do the math, that works. The the equivalent of the critical zone would be like wrapping a basketball in a thick sheet of copy paper. So that thick sheet of copy paper is the is the critical zone. It's that small relative to a basketball. And if you take an apple, it would be like a th a thicker plastic bag that type okay. of thickness. So where we live is actually tiny. And so when we're starting to think about the flourishing business canvas and designing businesses and thinking about the environment, we really need to be thinking about organizations as having potentially having a massive impact within this very, very small um, zone that's critical to life. It's now, not some of, enormous globe. Right, right. Now, what it sounds to me is it's like this kind of takes the Gaia principle to the next level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, you, fr from a biophysical perspective, you could say that the Guyanian processes are, are primarily occurring within the critical zone, the, the, because sure. it's something like 90% of all the water vapor is within that six kilometers. Um, and, and we're 70% water, and, uh, we're so, and all, all of this just kind absolutely. of fits into this zone 
if you will, of interaction, right? And, and so it's how we put our attention and intention toward that that makes the difference. Absolutely. And this, this is a huge point about design compared to planning. In planning, um, it's, it's kind of assumed that you're taking a, um, a, a, a position that is not based on a worldview. Right. right, that it's somehow right. you pure, and perfect your atmosphere, if you will. And, and exactly, that's a term that, that kind of encapsulates, right? Because it's all about how we think. But whereas design, as a counterpoint, the designer has to have their personal worldview embedded in the process of design, because it's where the creativity comes from. It's where the what's good, what's right, what's useful ideas come from, which is inherent in the process of design. And so, if you're designing a business model. And you're starting off with an understanding that the environment is, in fact, this enormous globe, then your mindset, your worldview is not going to be set in a way that's useful uh, for designing businesses that, in fact, will be socially beneficial, environmentally regenerative and financially viable. Um, and so this, this idea of the critical zone is a way of helping designers uh, frame their thinking around what is actually useful, practical, feasible, desirable. Uh, when they're designing their business in in the environmental context, right, and and with the concerns of what we, you know, it's kind of a hodgepodge of things because we're we're aware of global warming. We don't we're not sure exactly what's causing it. We don't necessarily include the the shifting of poles as in combination with what we've done as far as the contribution to pollution, of earth, air, and water. Um, so there there's all these other complexity issues, right, that enter into this concept that you're developing. Absolutely. And this this actually points to one of the biggest challenges uh, that we have. Um, one of the um, observations that I've been making is that um, earlier business planning approaches and earlier business design approaches like the business model canvas, they um, make the assumption that business is simple relatively speaking, because they only look at one context. They only look at the economic context. Right. And, and, and leading and, and lagging indicators. And, and leading and lagging indicators about the, the economic context. Right. Now, when you do, you know, ask what does the science say about this? Of course, the science says, well, that's rubbish because you've got to actually contextualize the economic within the social and the environmental. And of course, what that does to your point is, is to massively increase the complexity. And right. people then look at the flourishing business canvas and they say, this is too complex. And my response to that is no, the other models are too simple. We've kidded ourselves that the world is far simpler than it actually is. And that's in large measure what's coming back to bite us now. So uh, you mentioned, I agree, um, but you mentioned earlier that it, in order to create this conceptual model, the, the internal perspective of the creator needs to be well anchored in something. Now, where is that? You know, is that a, a place where there's, a, um, where you're creating this idea or does it emerge with the questions that are asked to find it? So there is a key question. I'm, I'm sure there's probably a, a combination. It's a combination, but if, if you wanted to, uh, if, what we've experienced in our work um, over the last decade or so, what we've, come to find is that we very much agree with Simon Sinek's idea that people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And so the key question is why? And when you start to ask that question of entrepreneurs and business leaders, it's personally, 
um, they often discover that they've, they've become rather unrooted from a, a personal purpose um, because our culture tends to push people in business towards uh, making uh, money. And that's been, you know, a big shift um, right. just as a little bit adjustments of adjustments to our lives that we don't necessarily resonate with and yet right. find almost imperatives to do. So it, it creates a disconnect. I mean, we've, we've in, in much of our culture, we have compartmentalized the, the spiritual with a big S or small S right. to be, you know, what you do uh, in Sounds a period of time. Now, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's it, we've partitioned it to be something we do on one day a week or at certain periods of the day, um, and um, we've forgotten that the spiritual's alive in all of us all the time. Yeah, um, and um, and the so, distinction too also is you know in, in this work that we do, there there's the old adage that oh leave work at work, home at home. And they're separate work, lives. Work life, work they're life really that, That's right. I, I had a lovely experience uh, coming back from a conference, and I was sitting on a bus going back to one of the main locations. And there was the keynote speaker uh, who had, I just heard was on the on the bus with me. And I said I really enjoyed his talk. And I said, "Where are you off to?" And he said, "Oh, I'm off to New York." And I said, "Business or pleasure?" And he said, "There's a difference." Right. And I think that encapsulates it very nicely. Absolutely. So, the the um, uh, so, so once you've got people over the idea that they do, in fact, have a personal why, they do have, in fact, something that drives them individually, then the question is, once the collective comes together to create an organization, because an organization is, is a socially co-created thing, um, you've got to figure out what the why of the organization is based on the why of all the people. And that actually brings the possibility that there could be a spiritual uh, dimension to the purpose of organizations. Right. And now, if, in this new thoughtmosphere that's being created right there's obviously going to be some uncomfortability in that because it's new mm -hmm. it's an unknown you're stepping into something what do you find to be the the reticence uh, uh, that you have to work through in order to accomplish that so i think we're only in the very early days of figuring that out to be perfectly okay. honest with you um what we what we have found is this word flourishing turns out to be very useful because um uh, people can put on it a very, very wide range of interpretations. Sure. And, and so um, when you suggest to somebody that they make the purpose of their business enabling the possibility for flourishing, um, some people will take that in a deeply spiritual way. Um, other people will take that in an almost purely economic way. Mm -hmm. And n neither is... Uh, and. and anywhere between those two and so well, and in fact that that term ends up being a world bridger right absolutely these different layers of how we think about the world and how we interact with it and that just you know kind of and brings it all together absolutely and and so what if I, if I have one observation so far it's that once you've introduced this idea of flourishing and that the, um, the only thing we can sustain practically and the only thing that we should desire to sustain ethically is the possibility that human and other life will flourish on this planet for seven generations and beyond once mm -hmm. you introduce that basic idea to people it sticks with them now and, that sounds very indigenous to me uh, yes well the seventh generation idea is a is a i think I'm, I'm not sure if it's a globally indigenous idea but it's certainly north american uh, in many of the North American first people's and, and South cultures. American and South American. Okay. Right. Um, and there's also another that, that goes a little bit, uh, that makes it more personal mm -hmm. 
Um, and that is the philosophy of the three brains. And I'm sure you're probably familiar with the, the gut, the heart, and the head. Okay. And yeah. the Western world generally processes from the head down if they even go below the shoulders. Where the indigenous philosophy is, you know, it comes from quantum physics now. It's being proven. Everything's right. vibration. Your gut right. is where you first connect with that. Well, it, so, it turns out there's a whole bunch of neurons in your gut. So, you right. know, where did the brain actually end? I mean, it's... it's well, it hasn't. You know, it hasn't, exactly. it's, we're a holistic system. You know, our bodies are instruments. We just haven't learned how to tune them or use them or, or even play them correctly yep. yet. Yep. Um, yep. So this kind of switch also coincides and empowers the process that you're going through with the flourishing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, and this is, I think it is an important distinction that these kinds of conversations, because my why is, you know, I want to, I have a, a limited understanding of what this means for us as humanity to move forward. And that we just need to figure out a way to all talk about it in a similar fashion with, you know, a language that works. Right. And science and math is often that the the emotional intelligence is that additional factor that we don't have, which in which seems to bring up the spiritual. Right. Because it's all a sensory experience like, you know, uh, Otto Scharmer um, and the theory or the you know, theory you model um, is co-sensing. It's co-presencing. And, and yep. you know, and that comes out of MIT now. And, and uh, <laughs> just to build on those co ideas so right. the flourishing business canvas actually talks about value co-creation rather than value propositions which is what the earlier models tended to talk about right. and it, it says that value arises in relationship which is exactly the same idea right it's exactly the same idea so um i i think that um I, just, just that I, sorry go ahead well I, I, it just brought to mind one of the things that that popped in my head a long time ago is we are all in our relationship on the ocean of emotion attempting to find safe harbor together mm -hmm. um yeah whether that's a poetic but you know i have these kinds of thoughts that, that just you know how can we express this elegantly so that it can be understood in a simple and practical and pragmatic way and, and i think that's one of the the things that the flourishing business canvas it is a contribution to, to making Absolutely. it practical and pragmatic. And um, it, it, at its heart, what these tools, what these business design tools do is they provide a common language to enable better conversations because you can actually be exactly. specific about the parts of a business model as opposed to having to negotiate with another person what those parts are before you can even start talking about what your version of those parts right. are in your business model. And traditional and, models have tended to be hierarchical in the sense that yeah. We have the idea, here's how you're going to implement it. And, you know, you point, yeah, your responsibility is this, your responsibility is that, but it's not brought together from the foundation in this co-creation process where it's kind of like DHOC tried to start, you know, Visa with, with this flat line, mm -hmm. right? Where everybody just participates knowing what needs to be done and you co-create the process for it to be, which takes it out of the hierarchical model and yet it really doesn't because there's a different source of information that becomes present as a result. Would you agree with that? Yeah, uh, yes, I, I think this it's is internal, kind of, right? It, and it, that internal is kind of a, um, it's a higher perspective for lack of a better term or integrated. The, the, the way I tend to see this is around questions of power. 
um, and who has the power for, with, over, to um, all of these potential ways that power can be exercised. Right. Um, and that includes straight line, dotted line, all, all of those things. And, and so yeah, on the flourishing business canvas, we actually do ask, what are the governance arrangements? So who has the, which of the stakeholders has the power to decide which decisions? Yeah. What parameters uh, do we have to fit in? That's right. And again, this is, this is again, a, a question that most organizations don't ask themselves. Um, certainly not in, in the early days of startup. And one of the things that we've been learning is that if you can engage stakeholders other than the founders in the in this process of startup and you actually give them some power, um, you actually co end up co-creating the business model. So not right. only does the business model co-create value, but the, you co-create the business model itself. Now, there's an, a similar experience that I have. One of my other hats is a, as a partnering facilitator for building road and bridge construction projects. So I do the, the pre-construction team building. And it has all the stakeholders and it's not just the principles of the company. It's the subs, it's utilities, it's fire, police, uh, cities, you know, municipalities. It's an entire group that comes together to actually decide how they're going to work together, code of ethics, and the methodology, goals and objectives. But the main reason is to talk about the issues that they see that are present already and then they resolve them as a group with processes or, or discussion or actual you know, issue, issue resolution plans so that when these items come up on the job, instead of creating thousands of dollars of, of work stoppage, right, that they know what they're going to do, do right. and implement it so that there is no job stoppage. And it often trunc truncates schedules, which means more profitability to the organization. Right, right. Absolutely. I, I, I think it's... I mean, in, in some respects, there's nothing new about the Flourishing Business Canvas. All of these ideas, like the ones you've just been talking about, like, like Theory U, the, these are... Um, it just makes sense. It, it just makes... I, I, I would call them the, the, they're part of humanity's wisdom. Um, yes. And yeah. um, one, one of the things that... Uh, we're also starting an institute called the Flourishing Enterprise Institute, to help promote and and get funding for the for the research that's there's tons of research around this that still needs to be done right and um one of the things we've been saying that um frames the the research that we want to be doing is it needs to be framed by the latest uh scientifically credentialed transdisciplinary knowledge sure, sure. It needs now to this be, brings up a question hold on hold on hold sure, on it, sure. it needs to be framed by uh, the best ethical and moral frameworks we have. And it also needs to be framed by humanity's deep indigenous wisdoms. Right. Um, because that tells you what's practically worked in the past. Absolutely. Right? So you need all three of those. And uh, in, in, in my view, because science is the best way we have of knowing the world, imperfect to social process though it is, um, ethics and morals tell us what, what we've decided collectively are desirable. Um, and the, the uh, deep indigenous wisdoms tell us what's been practical in the past and therefore what, what we need to pay attention to. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, again, it just makes sense. It just right? makes sense. Absolutely. That's now, right. we've gone from uh, a local to a tribal to uh, community to city states to nations to a global village now. 
And there are a lot of, of folks that are doing similar work. Um, and, and I found you through the Institute for Evolutionary Leadership and uh, Fyodor uh, Ochinikov. Um, now, do you see, and, and this brings up the, okay, there's a lot of different dots, right? Be it institutes or universities or, or individuals who are doing similar things, but don't necessarily know of each other, let alone are collaborating with each other in order to expand the atmosphere, if you will. Um, how do you see that rolling out, or, or do you yet? And I'm sure with, you know, kind of with the virtual so, world, so the, the, more available. You know, one challenge we have is, of course, everything is connected to everything else, mm -hmm. and so. Uh, but the, there's a capacity limit in the human mind about how many connections we can maintain actively. And there's also a practical issue about how much time you have in order to be able to establish and maintain those relationships. So I, I think there are always going to be uh, limits and I think there always will be networks of networks. Um, you mentioned time, if I could just mm. um, digress for just a moment, mm, or, sure. or progress maybe. Um, I'd heard from another individual, and this was written back in the 60s, that there was a perception that we don't have yet of measuring time as a change of entropy. And it would seem with that perspective, uh, which is you know, completely different than, than what we have been seeing it, but with that perspective, with the change of entropy, meaning it lessens that more things can be done in less time. And would you see that as a necessary oh, you're, you're you're getting this is this is going to go straight into non-equilibrium thermodynamics so uh <laughs> the, the um one of the interesting one of the interesting things is that we have been doing more in the last 200 years 200 plus years since the industrial revolution since we started to harness the the stored sunlight on the planet mm -hmm. and um the the we've created massive amounts of more of, of additional structures, everything from physical structures to social structures and social complexity over the last 250 years. What's interesting is that that's actually accelerated the amount of entropy we're producing. Um, and Initially, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, for, for the time being that, that we, we are producing more entropy now than we were 250 years ago. And Do you think it's because we don't understand holistic systems or systems in general? Yes, this is another very interesting topic. The um, uh, we're, we've had, you know, 400 years of the analytical age, the, the age of analysis, where we've the functional age, where we've assumed that we could understand everything by taking things apart and putting them back together again. Right. We've, right. we've had it's you can say that since the Enlightenment, that's the way we've trained ourselves to think. And it's and, funny how, it, you know, it, it's destructive analysis. Absolutely. But it's also been incredibly powerful. I mean, we can't. Absolutely. Yeah, we've got it, some great benefits. From we we have some absolutely fantastic benefits. So if you think about the 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 opposite, which is synthesis, <clears throat> where you ask not what is this thing contain, uh, what not is what not what this thing is con, uh, contains, but what contains this thing. If you start with that question, the context, right. in other words, right, um, and it's which, like which, the difference. Um, Dudley Lynch, uh, president of Brain Technology, said, wrote a book called Mother of All Minds. And he talks about the alpha and the beta human being, right? The alpha chassis with the alpha mind, which is steeped in, comp in competition. And the new way, it, the beta mind, 
has a comprehension of oneness, which is what you're talking about. You know, it's what's the container we're in. And and in the West, that and I should should mention that these two ideas are very much Western ideas, which have been imposed through colonization and other processes on the rest of the world. Um, uh, European. Exactly. So, but this, this this new way of thinking, this synthetic way of thinking, um, f- the first time that we had any scientific evidence that analysis couldn't tell us everything was um, the experiments that were done by Heisinger, where he discovered he couldn't find out all the parameters of an electron at the same time. In other words, analysis couldn't work. And that was only in 1927. Right. So we're, we're barely 100 years into a new thought revolution called systems thinking, where you use both synthesis and analysis in alternation in order to be able to get to the bigger picture understanding of how things work. William Marx tried to explain that with what the bleep, right, in in a a more simple or simplified way. So I think we should, so back to your your earlier question about the the network. So I I think as we start to um, do more and more systems thinking, I mean, it's, I think that those networks will start to bump into each other more proactively than they have been. Mm-hmm. Um, that, um, and I think we should be kind to ourselves because, you know, we are, we've had 400, 450 years, depending on how you count it, of analysis of that mindset being dominant. And we've had barely a hundred of systems thinking sure. and we've actually come a very long way. I mean, if you go to the natural sciences today, most natural scientists do have an understanding of systems thinking. Ironically, it's the social scientists and therefore the people in business schools who are being left behind, they, they are still very analytical in their thinking. Right. Well, even Fyodor had mentioned that with the program they've been working with uh, in Russia, that now, you know, that used to be, if you talk about systems thinking, that you were looked at as kind of a coup. Well, now there's 17 participants in a new program that they're developing at an academic level, which I think is huge. Um, now, you mentioned the, the, the care, right? Um, and the, the nature that we have that almost seems self-deprecating, right? As humans, we have a tendency to really be critical ourselves internally. We don't necessarily talk about it, but we beat up on ourselves constantly because we think we are inept or unqualified or whatever. Right. So that, which goes back to the question that Klaus asked, can we be caring and compassionate? It's not just about others. It's about self first. Right. So, so I think this is, um, you, you can't care for others unless you can care for yourself. Um, right, and, and we tend to not really consider that. Yes, I, I agree. Okay, yeah. so how, uh, that being given and, and with the systems thinking, um, and I know you were on a, a train of thought that, that, that I interrupted, uh, apologies for that. However, uh, how do you see that seeming juxtaposition of the self-deprecation and the systems thinking and, and having to move beyond that in order to integrate the systems side? Or do you? So it's not something I've given tons of thought to. So this is fairly much a top of mind sure. reaction to, to the question. Um, <laughs> That's the question you hadn't thought of yet. So I, I think that, um, as we start to understand ourselves as systems and as part of other systems, as we start to recognize that 
you know, this thing that looks like skin, that looks like a boundary actually isn't a boundary, at a hard boundary at all, that there's, you know, all kinds of things going on on top of the skin that's not part of me, but yet is part of me. Where's the boundary? The boundary starts to get very blurred. And I think when, as that, that process of, of applying systems thinking to ourselves starts to move forward, um, we'll start to recognize the deep interdependence we have um, of, of the self with the other. And, and those two will start to re, re, reconnect, which of course they always were before we came up with analysis, right? Before Cartesian thinking. You know, my show we, we, opening in La Catch, and it means I am another you. There, are, right. there is no separation. Exactly. There's perceptual because we do different things, right? But that doesn't mean that we're separate. It's all part of a larger whole that we're figuring out how to find less entropy in. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. Okay. Awesome. Um, and I hope that that really gets through to our audience. Now, let's, uh, we're winding down here. Mm -hmm. yep. So what, what practical advice have you, or what practical things have you found? And therefore, what advice can you give to others that are beginning to explore or maybe even haven't, but just need to begin to consider what we've been discussing? So in the context of starting organizations, which is my field of expertise and experience, mm -hmm. um, then if I may humbly suggest that using something like the Flourishing Business Canvas will accelerate the process of doing that sure. uh, because it gives you that shared language. Um, and we've seen that in practice, you know, when you're when when you're working with other people, with your other stakeholders and you're trying to figure out what are your value co-creations, who are your stakeholders, what activities do you have to perform to co-create that value with your stakeholders? when you're working with other people and you're, you're coming up with your shared understanding of those things, having a common language just accelerates that process so much. Um, mm -hmm. And I think people should be, you know, we've, we've got enough uh, academic support for the Flourishing Business Canvas that we're fairly confident that the questions that it asks are both the necessary and sufficient ones. Um, if, if you're interested in starting a business that considers uh, any, any, amount of social benefit, environmental regeneration and financial viability and, and any combination of those things. Right. And a regenerative culture is, is really what we need to be focusing on. Absolutely. Yeah. Now let's, so within that, there's still this personal activity, right? And so in this developing a, a common language and things, we find that most times perceived conflict comes because we're speaking or listening from a different dictionary than the other Right. So how do you, uh, on an individual level and on a personal level, how would you suggest is a better way to approach um, navigating life with others from that perspective? Oh, goodness, that's, I'm, I'm not sure I'm qualified to try to answer that question. Well, how, personally, though, uh, you, you have a process that you, that you use. So, so my, my, for, my, for, my, for myself, it's, it's, um, it's 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 try to assume that the world is abundant and be generous in your own abundance. Um, I would say if I if I had to encapsulate it in a few words, um, has that worked for me? Uh, in many respects, yes. In a few respects, no. Um, and um, is is that a problem with the underlying idea or just the circumstances? Or I don't know. It's it's difficult. Well, to like say. you said before, you know, we we have concepts, we have ideas, we, we attempt to express them or, or 
implement them and, and then we find out, yeah, that works, that doesn't work. And, and it's all this, you know, it's like shifting sands that you're trying to figure out how to think and feel appropriately first, or hopefully, and then step into the larger reality from that foundation. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we step into the reality without a foundation and get pushed and pulled by the energy that, that we experience and often don't respond. We tend to react because we're anticipating conflict rather than anticipating a flourishing environment. Indeed. And I think that's a lovely way for us to end. Absolutely. And I surely appreciate your time. Uh, and I'll have the information about your, your business and your work uh, in the credits and also below the uh, video when it completes. Thank and you very so, much, Zen. It's been, a, it's been a lovely conversation, and I hope your, our, our watchers uh, enjoy it. I'm sure they will. Thanks again. Okay, thank you. Namaste and in la catch. Thanks for watching One World in a New World, and we'll see you next time. Perfect. Sorry, I do have to go because I've got to call at 11. So and I've got to got to get to it. All right. Well, I thank you very much again. Yeah, uh, thank you.